now officially uh, introduce you to Bishop Hygieia. It's our joy to welcome him to the pulpit this morning. Bishop Hygieia is in his second year as the resident bishop of our California Annual Conference, California Pacific Annual Conference, his home conference. Before he was elected to the Episcopacy See in 2008, he served as a senior pastor in churches in Berkeley, Gardena, and Los Angeles. He also served as the Los Angeles District Superintendent and Dean of the Cabinet. Prior to uh, coming home to us and to be our bishop, he served eight years in the Greater Northwest Annual Conference, which includes the Alaska, Oregon, Idaho, and Pacific Northwest Annual Conferences. Bishop Hygieia is a graduate of Claremont School of Theology, from which he received the Masters of Art, Master of Divinity, and Doctor of Ministry. In 2012, he also received an educational doctorate in organizational leadership from Pepperdine University. He's a published author and a certified professional coach. He is currently a member of the uh, Commission on the Way Forward, which is a general conference uh, commission tasks with forging a strategy on human sexuality for the United Methodist Church. He chairs the leadership area, focus area of the four areas of focus for the United Methodist Church and is a member of the Council of Bishops Executive Committee. He also serves as the president of the College of Bishops for the Western Jurisdiction of which we are a part. Bishop Aguia is married to Janet, a high school librarian. He has three children and two pretty young grandchildren. Yep, he's a grandpa. Um, my experience with uh, Bishop Aguia goes back to the fall of 2000 when he taught uh, the class I was taking in United Methodist Polity. Um, he had just come off of General Conference, so uh, the class was treated to a number of stories about the things that happened there, including some pretty funny ones. Um, and he, but he also made us work. He made us actually read and study the Book of Discipline. So um, thank you for that grounding in the United Methodist Polity. Um, he is really supportive of his students, and I'm just delighted to have him here with you today as soon as he was I knew he was going to be our bishop I thought I really want you to meet him so welcome by Gia thank you well it's great to be with you today and um, I don't know if you know this or not but um, we're holding a lot of annual conference events here at your church in your social hall uh, Lee is so good about uh, uh, saying it's perfectly okay. Um, the reason that we're doing a lot here is the airport's so close, and we've gotten a hotel called the Hyatt Place, which gives us a great deal. So we really do want to thank you. So um, when Lee said, well, can you come and preach? I said, oh, gosh, I better uh, pay you back in some way. And I'm glad it's this Sunday because I, she's a little bit under the weather uh, with a cold, so if I could help out uh, by doing the sermon for her today, that's uh, a joy, double joy for me. Um, I uh, usually start with a little humor, and uh, the adjective is on little, um, but um, since I'm new to you, this uh, particular story comes to mind. story about the pastor who was assigned to uh, a new church, and it was going to be his first Sunday. And he really wanted to make a good impression. So he worked hours on that first sermon. I mean, he took this so seriously. He had multiple drafts. He kept revising it. He spent hours and hours on it. And finally, he came up to what he thought was a great sermon. Big Sunday, first Sunday comes, and he's in the pulpit, and 
he delivers this sermon and he thinks he's nailed it. He thinks he's, he, he just really wowed them with this sermon. And after the worship service is over, they're in the receiving line. And everybody's so affirmative. They're, you know, thanking him and welcoming him. And he comes across this little ball-headed old man who shakes his hand and says, thank you very much for the sermon, Reverend. But you know, it was a little confusing. And you lost me at various points. Well, he said, this was his first constructive criticism. And he said, well, you know what? I'm going to work harder next week. You come back next week. I'll have a better sermon for you. Goes about 20 more people, and there in line again is that little bald-headed old man. He shakes his hand and says, thank you very much for the sermon, Reverend. But you know, it was a little too long, and I tuned out the second half of the sermon. You know, okay, you know, I hear you. I'm going to make it shorter. You come back next week, and I'll have a better sermon for you. Finishes out the line, and wouldn't you know it, at the end of the line is that little ball-headed old man again. Shakes his hand and says, thank you very much for the sermon, Reverend. But you know, it was really kind of boring, and I fell asleep through most of it. Now the pastor's mad, you know. He thinks to himself, this is not constructive criticism. He's just really being negative. And he goes over and finds the lay leader, pulls him aside and says, who is that little bald-headed old man? The lay leader said, oh, pastor, don't mind him. He's a little bit off. He just goes around repeating what he hears other people saying. <laughs> so if we do have a receiving line, Lee, you all could get all of your criticisms out at once. You don't have to come back in line again and again to... Um, let me know uh, the deficiencies of this sermon. We live in very difficult times. From the rising tension we have with North Korea to our global ecological crisis, to the rise of violence and intolerance in our own nation, it's been a tough year for us, folks. And it's also been a tough year for our mainline churches, all of them. We live in what we call a post-religious, denominational, organizational culture. And this means that people are not seeking out churches to affiliate at all. Whereas in the 60s, young families were looking for churches. Now it's quite the opposite. They just feel that a church is irrelevant, especially our younger people in our world. And they're not uh, flocking to our doors or even considering coming to a Christian church. I have a friend who um, is uh, a consultant, and uh, recently she's worked with uh, Girl Scouts, whom their um, sort of membership is drastically curtailing, and they don't know why. And it is really an indication of a, a younger culture that doesn't affiliate with anything, really. They do not feel the need to be with organizations of any kind. Younger people, and especially Gen Xers and the millennials, are just not being uh, interested in any kind of organization. And our churches have been declining because of this. They we're not getting younger 
people, younger families into our midst. The average age of our United Methodist Church layperson is 58 years old. And we're graying rapidly. So the general church has tried all kinds of new things to try to bolster our numbers. And we haven't been very successful. Yet, folks, our message of hope and compassion is so desperately needed in our world and especially in our society. That people are hungering for this message of any kind of hope and meaning. And yet, they don't find it in the church. We have it. We better preach it on a regular basis. But we've got to find a way to bring them into the church or at least get this message out there to them because it holds real meaning and significance if they would accept it and be a part of us. So today, I'm going to ask you a question, and that is, what is your church's next dream? What is your church's next big project? To use the words of the leadership guru, Jim Collins, what is your next BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal? The church has to have something that it's going to um, be able to rejuvenate itself on. I know you're involved in Readiness 360, which is uh, a conference program for revitalization. And we hope that this will be fruitful for you. But all of you have to come up with some big thing that this church can be for this community and this neighborhood around you. You've got to come up with something that will bring them in connection with you. The scripture passages that I picked today, I think, are very appropriate. The Luke passage is the one in which Jesus brings the 70 followers, not just the 12 disciples, but the 70 of them together, included women in that 70. And he sends them out to the places that he can't manage anymore. You see, Jesus tried it on his own in the beginning. He went out and he, he preached and teached and um, um, raised the dead and healed the sick. And the crowds, because of this, became so large, he couldn't manage them. The needs were so great, he couldn't do it alone. So in this Luke passage, he changes tactics. And he brings his followers before him, and he gives them all the powers that God has given him to preach, to teach, to heal, to raise the dead. And he sends them out to the places that he would have gone. And they do those marvelous, miraculous things on their own. Now, that passage is very important for us because he says, don't take anything with you. You don't need resources. You don't need a lot of money. You don't need a lot of things. Just have faith. He tells them, don't bring any of the trappings that will keep you from this faith in God. But what they are to bring is their belief in God and each other because he sends them out two by two. Now, 
scriptures don't say this, but I think they became overwhelmed in the process. Even the 70, two by two, the crowds became too large. The needs were too great. They couldn't manage it all. And so what happens after Jesus is crucified and is risen? He can no longer lead them. So they follow Jesus' lead, and they create the Christian church in the Acts passage. You see, their reality now is Jesus has taught them a, a strategy to go out. Now they gather the Christian church. They baptize everybody in the name of Christ, and everyone is given those powers in their baptism. And they are sent out, that early church, to fulfill the same principle that the 70 are to to, um, do on their regular basis in their daily lives. And this is the birth of the Christian church. This is why we're here. We are heirs to that beginning. And each one of you in your baptism is given the powers of Christ. You may not believe this, but you can teach and preach and heal and raise the dead because you have the power of God in your baptism. Now, we've gotten so far away from this model, that's one of the things that you need to take on again. That after this Sunday, you are to go out into your daily life, to to your family, to your loved ones, to your neighbors, to your places of work, and you are to be the hands and feet of Christ. You've been empowered to do that. We just have to give you the confidence that you can pull it off. You see, Pastor Lee is now expected to do all those things on behalf of this church, but it's impossible. Jesus already tells us that. But think of it. If all of you in the name of Jesus went out and did these things, how many people would be affected by our ministry? How many people would be compelled to maybe check out El Segundo United Methodist Church because of what you've done for them. We are heirs to this scripture. And every one of you is to be sent out in your daily life and to do these things that are part and parcel of your Christian discipleship. Now, In that Acts passage, we hear some marvelous things that have happened in the Christian church. One, they regularly hear the word of God through the preaching of that word, verse 42, what we're we're doing right now. The church continues in steadfast prayer. We're also doing that today. The church continues in right relationship with God, awe and fear. Miracles and signs are worked through the apostles, and that made a deep impression on everybody they met. That's why that church flourished. The church engages in deep and abiding fellowship, sharing everything they possessed. And we're going to do that later in your social hall with a potluck. And finally, because of all these things, the church flourishes in verse 47 as the Lord adds numbers and members to its flock daily. I would love to pastor a church like the Acts 2 church. I would love to have every church in our annual conference become an Acts 2 church. 
I would love for your church to exemplify this Acts 2 model. So, we need to ask today, how can you become the embodiment of the Acts 2 church? How can you become this pristine church where people are fed on a regular basis, but then they go out and they feed others? What do you need to do this? How can we assist you to be an Acts 2 church? Now, you're going to learn about this in your process of the Readiness 360, and I pray that it'll be uh, fruitful for you. So I can't rehearse any of that, but let me give you a hint of what we're finding in the churches that are really vital and engaging. One is this principle which we call high-tech, high-touch. High-tech followed by high-touch. If we are going to reach younger generations, and especially in this technological age, they're gonna, the medium is going to be the Internet. Younger people will never come through your doors to explore your church, but they will, if they're interested at all, check out your website. And if your website is cool, that's all the better, but mainly they need to find something they're looking for. And what we're finding in younger generations is they're looking for something that will change the world, change the community in which they live, the neighborhood in which they live. And so they'll check out your website, and if they see something compelling on that website, they may consider coming to check it out. Feeding program, um, neighborhood cleanup, uh, a neighborhood discussion on... um, maybe something political or social. It doesn't matter. The church has to have these things in which you're going to entice people to come. But once they make that choice to come through the doors, it has to be followed by high touch. They need this sense of belonging, of hospitality. You see, our younger generations are so wired They're looking for a place to belong, a place where they can have a relationship. And you all know this phenomenon that um, you'd be in the same room with two younger people and they'd be texting each other even though they're sitting in the same room. That happened to me the other day in our own household. Uh, Two of our children were texting each other even though they were in the same house. That kind of impersonality can only go so far. So our younger generations need a place of belonging. And the church has done that for centuries. It's what we do best. So if a younger person comes through the door for the first time, unless everyone from the pastor down to the youngest child doesn't exhibit this sense of hospitality, they will not hang around. They need that sense of welcome. They need that sense of belonging. High tech, high touch. It's one of the simple formulas for you to remember as you think about what the next step for you is on this journey of vitalization and renewal. Now, let me give you a personal example. 
This is from my own family. We were baptized as infants. And um, my parents, after the war was over, um, they were interned in the Japanese camps. Uh, even though both of my parents were Native American citizens. They were both born in California. My mom was born in Ventura, and my dad was born in Guadalupe, Santa Maria area. And, um, but during World War II, they were interned in camps, as was 110,000 Japanese Americans. Three-fourths of them, by the way, were Native American citizens. Now, the camps were a, kind of a devastating experience, but that's actually where my parents met. They met in Gila, Arizona, which was the camp that was set aside for that particular uh, group of um, Japanese Americans. But after the war, my dad was actually drafted out of the camp into the U.S. military. And uh, believe it or not, he was drafted into military intelligence. <laughs> it's so ironic. Uh, he was... Um, uh, going to be an interpreter. They, grew, they had to get interpreters for post-occupied Japan after the war was over. And my dad's Japanese was terrible. I mean, he, he, he really didn't have very much, even though his parents, my grandparents, were both Japanese-speaking, first generation. My dad's Japanese was so bad that they had to go send him to school to learn Japanese, even though they drafted him in the military. So he took all of these classes in Japanese, and he said he came out with being terrible in Japanese. So after the war, sure enough, uh, the U.S. prevailed, and he was assigned to Japan. And his uh, company that he was assigned to as an interpreter, his captain spoke fluent Japanese. So um, my dad would tell me this story about the captain would um, be meeting some uh, people in a village, and he'd call my dad over, and he said, this is my Japanese interpreter, but he doesn't know me very much, so you could speak to me directly. And my dad would laugh about that story because he said it was the easiest assignment in the history of the U.S. military that he had. After, after that, though, um, he was discharged uh, honorably, and... Um, the West Coast was sort of closed for Japanese Americans because it was still pretty hot um, in terms of the racial prejudice. And so they migrated to the, to the Midwest where my sister was born um, um, and I was born. I was four years behind her in Chicago, Illinois. And my dad and mom started to build their life again, together again. They started a, a snack shop in Chicago and they worked Sundays. And even though we were baptized, they couldn't take us to church on a regular basis because they worked every Sunday. Well, they, the lure of California was so great. Those of you who live in the mid, have lived in the Midwest know how difficult the weather was, and they wanted to get back to California. So when I was five years old, um, a relative was living in San Jose, California, and they decided to come back, and we settled in San Jose. And by, back then, it was an a farming orchard town. Um, it's just morphed through the years. Um, um, we had very humble beginnings. They started a mom-and-pop grocery store in San Jose in a Hispanic area. But then they decided to fulfill their vow to take us to Sunday school. So they sought out a church in San Jose, and we ended up at Wesley United Methodist Church, great, great church, still there. That's my home church. And every Sunday, 
they would drive us to the church, drop us off, we would go to Sunday school, and they would sit in the car and read the newspaper. Okay? Every Sunday this happened. Without fail, we would be dropped off for Sunday school. Now, this church was very smart, though. Um, There were a whole line of cars that did this same thing. The parents would drive, drop their kids off, and then they'd stay in their cars during Sunday service. Well, the church would send out greeters every Sunday, and they'd knock on my parents' car door, and they'd say, a little bit cold in here, uh, out here. Why don't you come inside where it's warm? You could have a cup of coffee and some refreshments. You, no obligation. You don't have to come to service. We've got a room set aside for, for you. And my parents, every Sunday, would decline politely. No, we're fine here. Well, this happened every week, Sunday after Sunday. The greeters would come out and knock on all of these doors until finally One Sunday, my parents said, we're going to take them up on this. And that one event was life-changing for them and our family. Every Sunday after that, they would attend worship. And we would go to Sunday school. And we would never miss Sunday services. Now, um, our family became very active in that church. Um, my parents were um, leaders of the church. They taught Sunday school. We, we became uh, very entrenched in the Sunday school. I taught Sunday school in high school and then uh, led the youth group uh, in high school and college. Um, it became a kind of life-giving uh, organization and um, reality for all of us. And um, my mom was a um, stay-at-home 70s mom. And um, we don't have those very much anymore. Um, I was at a uh, confirmation event where uh, we had all of these churches who confirmed their uh, junior high school students, and they were going to be confirmed all together. So they asked the bishop to come out, and I gave a talk. And I was trying to explain to these junior high school students what a stay-at-home mom was because they didn't know what that was. All of their moms worked. And so I tried to remember um, some image that they would relate to. And being a boomer, what immediately came to my mind was June Cleaver of Leave it to Beaver. You know, she was a great mom, I thought. You know, I grew up with June Cleaver on TV. Well, they had no idea who June Cleaver and Leave it to Beaver was. I mean, that was like in a parallel universe. They had no, they've never heard of that. So I'm trying to think, okay, well, who else would be a contemporary mom? That So it hit me, all right, Claire Huxtable of the Cosby Show, you know, which was popular. And um, I, she was a, a lawyer, but she was a great mom, all right? They had no idea who Claire Huxtable and the Cosby Show was. This was before Bill got into trouble, by the way. Um, and so, again, you know, I'm trying to think, well, who, because I don't watch much TV anymore, but it hit me during the middle of this talk that I'm trying to think of somebody, Marge Simpson of the Simpsons. And immediately they all perked up and said, oh, okay, we get what you mean. Marge Simpson, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we understand. And it later occurred to me that if the icon of motherhood is Marge Simpson, our society is in a whole lot of trouble. But um, that's another sermon for another time. Um, June Cleaver, Claire Huxtable, Marge Simpson, they had nothing on my mom. My mom would iron our socks. 
My mom would iron our underwear. Everything was color-coded in our dresser drawers that she would put away um, ritually, ritualistically. She would iron our bed sheets and have them changed every single week. In fact, every day she would make our beds and fluff up the pillows like hotel service. Not a speck of dust in the entire household. And every evening, there was a home-cooked meal from scratch and a home-cooked dessert, of which she excelled in all of that. I once saw her to-do list for a day, and it had all of these to-dos that she had down that it was run like a clock, clockwork, that she would go to this and to that, and everything was ritualized in terms of her schedule. She was the center of the household, as you can imagine. Everything revolved around that house, and we were a close nuclear family because of her, really. Now, when I was 14 years old, um, life intruded into our family, and um, we had a, a, a great, I had a great childhood, great parents, but my mom developed a, a limp in her uh, leg for no reason. And after exhaustive medical tests, they found that it was malignant. Um, Medical technology wasn't what it is now, and they could never find the source of that. So she started a round of chemo, and she was um, so optimistic that she was going to beat this. Now, the other thing is my mom's faith was like a rock. She put my faith to shame, really. It was a much more fundamentalist faith than mine, but she totally believed that, that Christ would and God would take care of her, no matter what. But because um, they could never find the location of that cancer, um, we uh, lost her right before Christmas uh, on my 14th uh, year of life. And being a family like this, when we lost her, it was like the bottom fell out of our family. I mean, we, we didn't know how to take care of myself. And I did not know my dad was so resourceful because he never had to be, all right? But he turned out to be this tremendous resourceful source. Um, we were all so devastated, uh, especially um, my sister and I, in terms of um, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to cope. And we noticed that um, each one of us had a steady stream of friends who would visit us after her death. But then I noticed the ones who stayed the longest, the ones who gave the most care were our church friends. All three of us had those church friends. The funeral was going to be tough, folks. We were such a central part of that church, and um, it was going to be hard on everybody. Uh, My mom was only 43 years old, by the way. That was really young by standards of today. And I remember distinctly the church sanctuary filled and then the basement of the church filled with the overflow. And then people kept coming and they had nowhere to put them. So they opened up the education wing which was set apart from the sanctuary and they started to put people in classrooms. And this was before audio-visual feeds and so some of these people sat through the whole service without hearing or seeing a thing. Our pastor 
the message was so powerful. He spoke of my mom's faith and of stories about her life. It buoyed us tremendously. After that service, we were to lead the uh, processional to the graveside. And um, I remember coming out of that service, and I looked at a sea of cars that were behind us. And I literally could not see the end of the line of cars. That's how many were in the processional. And that's when it hit me. With all of these people who love my mom, there to pray and support us, how could we not make it? How could we not survive? And we did. We did. It is the symbol of high touch in my life. And my loyalty to the United Methodist Church would never falter from that moment on. Actually, folks, I stand here before you in this role because of moments like that, dozens of moments like that, that our local church gave me to give me confidence and faith to carry on, to accept life for what it is, time sometimes, but always that God would be there to undergird me. This is the Acts 2 church transforming lives, transforming my life, that I would never be the same without the church. And I think of all those 14-year-old kids in our community out there now who are facing similar challenges Without the church, I don't know how they're going to make it. Now, I realize this is a sublime example. This is something that um, is extraordinary. And much of our life is lived in so ordinary time. But I believe God is in our midst in the extraordinary as well as the ordinary. God is in the midst, in the profane, as much as the sacred. We just got to seek out God harder in the ordinary moments of our lives. And that's what the church does for us. We put on what John Calvin calls the glasses or lenses of faith. And we see the world differently because of these lenses that we have. And because of these lenses, we know that God is a constant presence. Even though people don't see God directly, even though people may not acknowledge God in our secular world, we see God and we know what that means for our lives. We just have to work that much harder to enable people to also see this God that we know. I know the church is not flocking with people. And it's tough sometimes for us who sit here on a regular basis not to see people filling our pews and coming to our events and being transformed by our lives. But again, that's our job. We have to be the vehicles by which we bring this message to them. That all of those 14-year-old boys out there, all of those people out there who are needing this message of hope and truth and light, we need to go out and bring them that message. They're not going to receive it by coming in necessarily. So we've got to meet them where they are. That's part of what's going to 
be your readiness, 360. That's part of being a church who relates to your community and neighborhood in a very important way. Let me close with this story. A young couple had started coming to a very pretty vibrant church. And the pastor had seen them a couple times, but greeted them, but never got to sit down with them to hear their story. So one Sunday, the couple um, asked for an appointment with the pastor, and he was glad because he really wanted to hear uh, about their lives and um, fully welcome them. And after that Sunday, they he brought them into um, his office, and they said, uh, Pastor, we're so happy to be here. Thank you. Um, and then they had a request. Uh, they said, would you baptize our child? Now, he had never seen them with a child, so he said, of, of course. Um, uh, and went through the, the ritual and went through the conditions of baptism. They all agreed, set the date for the next Sunday. And then, very... Um, Surprisingly to the pastor, they said, um, Pastor, would you also be willing to do a memorial service for our child? And he was a little confused because they asked for the baptism. So he said, do you have another child who's ill? And they said, no, Pastor, it's the same child. She had been battling a childhood cancer from very early. They had tried every medical procedure, both traditional and experimental. And there was nothing else they could do. It was getting close to the end. And what they wanted to do was to bring her home one final time to introduce her to the church, have her baptized, so she would know this joy that they felt. And the pastor felt so deeply sympathetic for him, he had no idea this was going on. And then he asked them, is there anything else the church can do for you? And the couple looked at each other and then said, oh, pastor, you already have. You see, unbeknownst to the pastor, three of the couples of that church had taken this young family under their wing. They had been with them in really tough times. They had been in the hospital with them. They had stayed in their house when it was vacant many times, cleaning up, providing meals. And most importantly of all, these three couples had prayed with this family in their darkest hours. Pastor had no idea this was taking place. And after he said a final prayer for them, he escorted them out of his office only to find waiting in the hallway those same three couples there to receive this family, there to put their arms around them and hug them and pray for them. This is the Acts 2 church at its very best. It's what I pray will happen on a regular basis in your midst. And even though it's a supreme kind of uh, unusual example, you will be able to fulfill this if you provide the sense of faith to each other and those who come in to be a part of this community. It is what the church means to us and to everybody, to that 14-year-old boy yet to be identified who needs God who needs this church so desperately.
may it be so.